Now we're going to see a low of 56 this evening, and it is time for Planet Watch. Welcome to Planet Watch. I'm Joe Jordan, and Rachel Goodman, who you would normally hear chiming in at this point, is away this week, but she'll be back next week. Instead, we have our two illustrious interns. I'm Maya Rodriguez. And I'm Tommy Martin. And thanks for uh, coming in today. Uh, today's show is about uh, some exciting prospects for solving a whole lot of problems and making the world a better place in, in various ways. Uh, Helping with jobs and uh, training of people to do green work in the world and helping the environment through solar energy and also helping solve poverty and, and problems of low income all in one. We'll have a, a, a woman who works for an organization called Grid Alternatives, which you actually can get involved with both here in this country and internationally. But more on all that later. Um, I do want to mention that Planet Watch has a podcast uh, which to, to which you can subscribe for free at planetwatchradio.com. That's planetwatchradio.com. You can also just pick off any of our, like, 90 shows we've done now for about a year and two-thirds, and we're heard on every continent. We'd like to thank Michael Zwirling for uh, sponsoring this show on local uh, community radio station KSCOAM 1080. And you can email us throughout the show at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Thanks, Tommy. And uh, let's see. Uh, we have a few news stories uh, for you this week, uh, you know, environmental and science news. And all three of us have items. So I guess we'll start with uh, Maya. Thanks, Joe. It's already well known that air pollution is harmful, but researchers have now quantified how harmful it can be to the human lifespan. According to the study published in Environmental Science and Technology Letters, air pollution shortens human lives by more than one year. According to the University of Texas at Austin, this is the first time that air pollution and lifespan have been studied together in order to examine how they affect overall life expectancy on a global scale. The researchers examined outdoor air pollution from fine particle matter in 185 countries. Breathing these tiny particles is associated with increased risk of heart attacks, strokes, respiratory diseases, and cancer. According to the researchers, this pollution comes from power plants, cars and trucks, fires, agriculture, ag I'm sorry, agriculture, and industrial emissions. These findings were so significant that the researcher Joshua Apt stated that improving air quality could be more impactful to survival rates than finding cures for both lung and breast cancer combined. So that's an interesting story, and uh, of course, there was one statistic in there that it can shorten human lives by about one year. Well, of course, that depends on, you know, how close you live to the major pollution centers and how much time you spend there. You know, it may be you live fairly close, but you're out away from there. You know, when you commute to work, you go somewhere else farther away. So it depends on a lot of things, but I guess the one year is sort of a... 
uh, an average of many factors. Uh, Another thing is, um, here's um, (laughs) fuel for the fire, I guess you could say. Uh, I have a lot of debates with people about this whole, the reality of human-caused climate change, even though it's kind of like debating whether the Earth is round. Um, But, you know, (laughs) the same thing that you would do to solve the problem of global overheating is would solve this really obvious in-your-face problem. I say, hey, well, if you don't believe in climate change, how about in-your-face air pollution, which is what Maya was just describing. You know, smog, acid rain, asthma, all, all these things. So that stuff is real, and nobody can argue against it, and uh, now they've actually quantified it. So thanks for that story. And Tommy, on to you. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Lithium-ion batteries are everywhere around us. From our cell phones to electric toothbrushes and even our cars, these amazing powerhouses have transformed our society. But what if those same devices could store 10 times more power? That's the goal of chemists from the University of Waterloo, who this week resolved two of the most challenging issues surrounding lithium-oxygen batteries. While they can contain more energy, the lithium-oxygen batteries have been plagued by unstable compounds which rip the battery's components apart after only a few charging cycles. The team discovered that by changing the electrolyte and electrode host and raising the temperature of the batteries to 150 degrees Celsius, the team was able to push the batteries past 100 charging cycles. While they would currently be too hot for our phones or toothbrushes, the batteries could one day help power a green energy grid storing excess wind and solar power. This makes the team the first to achieve four electron conversion, which doubles the electron storage of the lithium oxygen batteries. However, the researchers caution this breakthrough is only one piece of the puzzle as they continue to test the lifespan and cost efficiency of these batteries. Yeah, so that, that story kind of harkens back to a, st- a story we had like six months ago on some major advances in uh, lithium-ion batteries. Uh, the guy who invented it is this 95-year-old guy named uh, Goodenough, John Goodenough. <laughs> and he's still alive and kicking and working on this stuff. Uh, sounds like a different effort from the one you just described and he has a a way apparently of getting much more storage much lighter weight and uh, so you know stay tuned on this stuff and of course the big issue is going to be well where do you get lithium anyway uh, Bolivia is one of the main repositories natural repositories of the world's lithium and uh, there are uh, land ownership contested uh, issues like China apparently has a lot of the land in Bolivia or has control over it. So, but there are other sources of it. And, well, this whole thing of conflict materials is, is a very interesting, important thing. We should have a show on that. And actually, <laughs> I met today's speaker at a seminar on conflict minerals, <laughs> among other things, uh, this past week. But uh, we'll, we'll get to more on, on that in a little bit. Um, so our uh, faithful listener, Michael McKay, uh, probably will be interested in that story because he's always feeding us items on the latest on lithium battery technology. So energy storage, you know, ha- had not been really worked on for much, for hundreds of years. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, uh, the, the chemical storage is, uh, there's quite a renaissance and a, and a revolution. And uh, it's kind of exciting to see what, uh, what folks are coming up with. So thanks for that one. I got a couple items for people. And... Um, uh, by the way, can you tell Maya whether our 
uh, guest has called in yet, they usually notify you on the computer or something. Oh, okay. We got she the thumbs has. up from our engineer, Griffin. Hang on there, Janine. We'll get to you in just a sec. Got a couple of interesting items. I'll make short work of them, unlike all the blabbing I've just been doing here on this show. We don't have Rachel here to rein me in. But anyway, um, you know, you probably heard that uh, ice on the moon... You heard something about that maybe this past week? <laughs> I mean, it's long been suspected and there's been indirect evidence, but now we have real direct evidence from infrared spectroscopy um, that there are uh, puddles, <laughs> frozen puddles, uh, deep, thick ones uh, in totally uh, permanently shaded corners of craters in the polar regions of the moon. And... Um, you might wonder, well, where does ice come from on the moon anyway? Well, every now and then a comet, an icy comet, will smash into the moon. And, you know, it'll probably vaporize to steam upon impact, but then in the extreme cold near absolute zero out there, there's no atmosphere on the moon. Uh, it'll briefly have an atmosphere <laughs> after such an impact. And in fact, you know what? Uh, the LEM, the Lunar Excursion Modules with the Apollo missions, Every time they blasted astronauts off the surface of the moon to head back to Earth, they contributed like about a fifth of the atmosphere of the moon. It does have a very, very slight atmosphere, and about a fifth of it comes from the human launches, or at least that was a number I heard way back then. Well, anyway, so these comets come around every now and then, and they contribute a little bit of water, uh, which is uh, super frozen ice on the moon. So anyway, that's been confirmed in just this past week. Um, Stay tuned for more on that. And then um, here's something that is a preview of next week's show. Uh, exciting news. You've heard, all heard of Standing Rock, the big showdown that was up there for the better or the worst part of a year where the water protectors were trying to uh, prevent a, a huge oil pipeline, Dakota Access Pipeline, from being tunneled under the river. Missouri River, I believe. Anyway, they, they uh, protested. They had an encampment. Uh, all kinds of amazing things were going on there. And then, you know, they, they brought out the troops and harassed these people big time, shut them down, shut down the protests. However, whether that pipeline is going to be built is still hanging fire. But the big news this week was some of the uh, protesters, uh, the water protectors, have had the charges against them dropped. In particular, one named Chase Iron Eyes, and the significance of his charges being dropped is that he was using the necessity defense. This is a, a real trump card, if you will, in the world of environmental uh, legal affairs because it's saying that, you know, this whole global warming, global overheating, climate chaos thing... Uh, we have a necessity to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and a good quality of life. And that is being threatened uh, by the fossil fuel industry. And uh, the reason the charges were dropped against Chase Iron Eyes, I have it on good authority to believe, is that uh, the, uh, the offending uh, oil companies and their apologists did not want the necessity defense to have to be contested legally so they decided to settle instead but next week you'll hear more on all that from some of the uh, local heroes involved in that and maybe even remotely from some of the faraway people who've been involved in that legal battle so stay tuned anyway uh, we have our guest now on on the line and this is uh, Janine Smith spelled J-E-N-E-A-N -E <laughs> of Grid Alternatives 
And uh, Janine uh, was, uh, she has a background of, of service. Uh, she was the youth programs director for a foundation in Honduras. And she founded a, a nonprofit called Power to the People in Nicaragua to promote renewable energy and local green jobs training in that area. And uh, that actually then she, she facilitated the integration of that into an organization which is all over, well, all over this region and state called Grid Alternatives. Uh, where people get, they learn how to do photovoltaics uh, design and installation. Photovoltaics being solar electricity, you know, the really cool solar panels that <laughs> turn light into electricity that you're starting to see more and more all over the place. And, well, you know, so it's an exciting uh, kind of career to, to get training for. And so Grid Alternatives both provides people, especially low-income people like Habitat for Humanity projects. I was teaching renewable energy at the local community college, Cabrillo, and I had my class take one of the very first trainings that Grid Alternatives did way back in the early 2000s. And then we went and installed solar panels. I remember climbing up with my students some really long, tall ladders up to the third floor roof carrying heavy solar panels. It was kind of exciting and we uh we tricked out the whole habitat for humanity complex there at the morrissey avenue exit just east and south of santa cruz uh with solar so next time you go by there you can see our handiwork up there well anyway grid alternatives uh, organized all that and so janine has uh uh brokered the blending of uh an international program into the existing domestic effort of grid alternatives so janine welcome to planet watch and uh, thanks for uh, coming on to talk with us today. Oops, I'm uh, not hearing anything. Uh, hopefully she heard everything. She's not here. Hi, Derek. Oh, hi. Uh, did, was that hi you? there. All right. Uh, I don't know what was going on there, but uh, we got it resolved, I think. Hey, Janine, so did you hear everything I was just saying <laughs> to introduce I you? I did, I did. Good, yes. Good. <laughs> did, I, uh, did I get mo mostly right? <laughs> that was pretty good, yeah. Yeah, well, so um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your uh, history in in service projects and education and training and uh, energy and environment and just uh, what what your latest view of things is and everything. <laughs> okay, I will tell you everything. Um, well, I'm currently the director of international programs at Grid Alternatives, and I've been working with the organization for about four years. Uh, we're a, a nonprofit organization based out of Oakland, but like you said, we have offices all over California and Colorado and Washington, D.C. And I run our international program, which works in Nicaragua and Nepal and Mexico. And um, this started as a nonprofit that I started back in 2008 with a bunch of volunteers called Power to the People. And we ran that for about six years, working exclusively in Nicaragua on off-grid solar projects. And then in about 2014, we merged with Grid Alternatives to become their international program. So um, since then, we've expanded to Mexico and Nepal. Um, you know, before that, I worked for Mitsubishi Electric. Uh, they're a manufacturer of photovoltaic modules. So that was really interesting to get that perspective. And I worked for Trojan Battery Company, a manufacturer of deep cycle lead acid batteries, which are often used in, in renewable energy projects as well. So it was great to get that perspective. Um, and now I'm... Uh, working with off-grid and grid-tied projects in uh, in the three countries that I mentioned. Yeah, so just to 
catch the interest of some of our listeners, uh, including myself. <laughs> you mentioned Nepal, for instance. You got Nicaragua, mm -hmm. you got Mexico, Nepal. All of these are, you know, places abroad that have interesting, in, in some ways, exotic uh, geography around them. Nepal, of course, being right at the doorstep of the Himalaya Mountains. Uh, so if somebody wanted a good excuse to travel, maybe do a little trekking around in the Himalayas, but also doing some important service work to the world while learning how to do solar, can is that something that one can just apply for? Uh, you know, you have projects that every now and then come up and the word goes out, and okay, we're going to be doing a, what, a two-week thing uh, in September of this year or whatever. How, do, how does that all work? Yeah, we do have those opportunities, actually. So uh, we have... Um staff in all three of those countries and we have groups of people that come with us and work with our staff it's usually about an eight-day experience and Nepal's a little bit longer just because it takes a day or two to get there and get back and um, you can really just sign up all the opportunities are on our website and we publish them as they come up throughout the year generally they're small groups of about 10 people and the people that go sometimes have solar experience sometimes have no solar experience uh really a great opportunity to get hands-on experience installing systems and you know the systems range in size so some of them will be small off-grid systems that power drip irrigation systems for rural farmers some of the systems in mexico are much larger 10 20 30 kilowatt um, grid tied systems on an orphanage to reduce the electric bill for the orphanage so the the opportunities uh, vary but there are opportunities in all of those countries so you just mentioned standalone or off-grid versus grid-tied. So obviously mm -hmm. there are some places in Nepal, <clears throat> probably, let's see, is Kathmandu in Nepal? I believe it is. Mm -hmm. they, yep. I guess they have an electrical grid there. <laughs> uh, and then grid-tied means, okay, you're on the grid a lot of the time, but um, you also, dur during the daylight hours when the sun is shining and it's not too cloudy, uh, you're making your own electricity and contributing that into the grid. So Nepal yep. has a fair amount of that? Nepal, uh, Nepal has an electrical grid, um, but they have a, a very large area of the country um, in different places that are, that are off-grid, um, especially due to the terrain, the mountainous terrain. There are many, many villages that have no electricity, that have never had electricity, that probably won't for a long time because it's so hard to get electric poles and it's very expensive to get the electric grid there. So all of our work so far in Nepal has been off-grid. Um, in fact, some of our larger and more interesting projects there um, are in Nepal. We installed a microgrid a couple of years ago, which is essentially bringing electricity to an entire rural village all at one time, connecting all of the buildings together and having the energy stored in a central battery bank so that it operates almost as if they were grid-tied, except it's their own little microgrid. Oh, yeah, microgrids are uh, kind of an exciting frontier uh, in the world of energy. I, I sort of think that's... Where a whole lot of the world, even in, in you know in this country, is going to uh, be looking like many loosely coupled microgrids, uh, sort of community, almost self-sufficient energy systems uh, powered by the sun and its derived energy sources. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, that's that is cool. So, so say if somebody wants to go to Nepal, but they're a little scared of just striking out on their own. They don't really know anybody there and don't know anything about the culture. I guess your organization will sort of shepherd them or Sherpa them through uh, <laughs> some of the cultural uh, trappings and, you know, the food and where you stay and all that. You, you kind of handle a lot of that stuff. 
Yeah, definitely. For all, for Nicaragua, Nepal, and Mexico, um, our staff has a really comprehensive packet that we give to travelers before they go that talks all about, um, you know, the currency and what to bring and what to wear and what to expect and a lot of information about the community that they'd be working in, um, cultural norms, language, and things like that. And we offer a pre-trip webinar for folks that go. Um, the nice thing about going in a group, too, is you're there with other, other people that are in a similar situation as you, so you can kind of have that experience together. Hmm. Wow, sounds very intriguing. Uh, I might look into doing that myself sometime. Uh, by the way, folks, uh, if you want to interact with Janine uh, on this show now, in the next, uh, you know, 20 minutes, when we'll still have her live on the air and or in between our shows or anytime, you can email us at the address radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. So that's all one word. How many letters is that? Uh, uh, 16 letters. Radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And so, uh, yeah, keep those cards and letters coming. Uh, Tommy and Mai are scanning the computers for your call. So, um, well, yeah, so, and where do you go in Mexico, by the way? What, what areas? Uh, right now we're working in northern Baja, California, so the Tijuana area and some communities um, near Tijuana. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's kind of just barely Mexico. <laughs> yeah, although Baja, California is a very interesting place. Uh, yeah. Pretty spectacular the farther down the peninsula you go. Uh, and then Nicaragua uh, was the third place you mentioned. However, uh, there's been a lot of political strife there lately. Uh, strangely enough, Daniel Ortega, who <laughs> used to be a lot of people's hero because he was he led the effort to kick out the hated u.s backed somoza who was the dictator there for so many years uh and then you know the sandinistas but then the contras got sent in by reagan and all this stuff and now all of a sudden ortega seems to be on the wrong side of history you know presiding over or at least looking the other way at you know the killings of lots of Nicaraguans. To update us on that, and also what the impact is on what you are doing there. Yeah, that's a really interesting situation that came about this year. It started in about April and was fairly unexpected. Um, so many people may remember Daniel Ortega as, like you said, the leader of the Sandinista Party from the '80s during the whole Iran-Contra affair when uh, Reagan and his folks supposedly sold some arms to Iran um, undercover and then used the funds to fund the Contras and the Contras, Contra and Spanish means against. So those are the folks that were going against the, the rebels at the time, which were the Sandinistas. And sort of ironically, but also somewhat predictably, as this is a, a very much a pattern um, with, with people that have been in this situation before, uh, the leader of the Sandinista party, Daniel Ortega, um, has, gone, has been back in power for several years now has um, almost become the dictator that he was replacing, some would say. And I'll try to tell this to you in a factual manner without uh, being too subjective. But um, what's happening now is in, in April, the Sandinista folks, um, government, were trying to change the Social Security law in Nicaragua. They were having asking people to pay more money, including people that were already retired, asking them to pay into Social Security. And um, the country, the people of the country really had had enough. Um, that was just sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't that in of itself that was terrible, but um, it was really that plus a combination of a lot of other things. And so the, uh, the uprising in April was really led by students of the country, which was really interesting to see 
because the Sandinistas back in the 80s were also students that rose up against, and young people that rose up against the Somoza regime, like you mentioned. So um, the students and farmers and a lot of rural people um, uh, have been going to and organizing a lot of protests in the country and speaking out and asking for the Ortega government to step down and asking for the elections, presidential elections, to be speeded up so that they could have them sooner. Um, And it really has um, blown up. It immediately blew up in April into a lot of violence um, where, um, you know, according to the news and sources, the government um, had the police and the military just outright shoot people at protests. Um, which escalated even further um, to some of the police and the government shooting people um, as snipers from people's windows. There were some stories, horrible stories, about the police knocking on somebody's door, and if they said, hey, can we use your balcony to, as a sniper base to shoot protesters, and they said no, they burned the entire family alive in their house, this kind of thing. So really, really horrible violence that didn't get a lot of news coverage here in the U.S., which has just happened you know, just a few months ago this year. So this has been going on. Um, the Catholic Church was quite involved and attempted to have dialogues between the different groups. Um, the dialogues didn't really end up being very productive. And now the country's back to a point where there's still a lot of violence, but it's a little bit more um, it's harder to see. It's a little bit more calculated, where folks that were participating in the protests are now on lists, and um, government people are going around to houses and trying to find them arresting them on the street with no due process, throwing them into um, a prison called Chipote Prison in Nicaragua. This is, this is still happening today. So needless to say, this has affected our work in Nicaragua, as well as many, many other NGOs that are working with energy access or water projects or other types of projects. Um, we've had to have our staff um, stop doing projects, stop making site visits to communities. They are... Um, really unable to leave their houses for most of the time. It's very unpredictable what will happen on the street or if somebody will be arrested while they're taking their kids to school. Um, and fortunately, because we're part of all grid alternatives and we do work in other places and we have very generous supporters, we've been able to support our staff the whole time, which is which is really remarkable and not the case with a lot of other groups that we're not able financially to continue to support their staff. So we're at the point now where, you know, we have a a great office in Messiah. We have a warehouse full of solar equipment. We have an amazing staff of eight people, and we're really just waiting until it's safe enough again for the staff to be able to at least start to do some projects locally in the communities that we work in. Hmm. So you still have staff living down there. They're just not doing the usual kinds of projects. Uh, And I guess they have to, uh, like you were saying, lots of people have to be pretty careful about where they even venture out from the places where they're living um Mm -hmm. so that your staff is included boy that it's kind of hard to imagine you know not being able to you know go out for a run or a bicycle ride or as you say take your kid to school or something but uh Wow, what a what yeah. a miserable situation! Uh, any signs of that uh, getting any better anytime soon? Or it's hard to predict what's what's going to happen. Um, the way that it's going, and I should mention that before all of this happened, Nicaragua was the safest country in Central America. This is very unusual. Although a lot of us in the U.S. remember the Sandinista Revolution in the '80s, that's not normally what Nicaragua is like. It's normally a very safe and wonderful, welcoming place. Very much out of the ordinary, but it's really hard to predict um, what's going to happen next and when it will be safe enough 
for people to go back to work. Um, it, it looks like what's happening is the government there is trying to um, really scare people back into complacency and um, you know punish people as a way of threatening future people from from protesting again so that the country kind of goes back to how it was about a year ago. Um, it, if that's effective, at some point the violence will die down, life will kind of go back to way it, the way it has been, um, and then our staff can go back to work. But it's really hard to predict when that would happen. Hmm. Well, so that's one area which is kind of on hold. And then you've also mentioned Nepal and Mexico. So let's take those two areas. And then ultimately, I should ask if you have other uh, horizons on your horizon, you know, other countries that you would like to cultivate some activity in. Uh, and, you know, how many projects, say, do you have, a, you know, a handful of projects in Nepal and Mexico? Or mm -hmm. uh, how often do they happen and so on? Yeah, um, well, let's see. So in Mexico this year, we are working on uh, four projects this fall, a couple of orphanages, grid-tight orphanages. Uh, we're working in, a, in an off-grid community, an indigenous community, um, with the Kumeyaay people, which is really cool, bringing them off-grid solar home systems on their homes. Um, that's a really neat project because that's an area that really should have grid power, but because it's an indigenous community, it's kind of been overlooked and ignored. Um, so we're really happy to be able to at least provide some basic solar home systems there where each home has their own solar panel, their own battery, and is able to run lights and small electrical appliances. And then we're also going to bring solar to the school in that community later this year as well. So in Mexico this year, we're doing those four projects. In Nepal, um, we're doing a big microgrid in about a month. So that's a 16-kilowatt microgrid project. And we're also bringing solar. We brought solar to a couple of observation towers in the Chitwan National Park there, which are also neat projects because the funds from the tower, the towers are places where travelers can stay as they're traveling through the park so that they don't get eaten by a lion, you know, <laughs> on the way. <laughs> so they go up into the towers, they can stay, you know, kind of like a three-story treehouse, and um, they pay a small fee to stay there. The money from the towers goes to the buffer zone committee, which is a group of people in the area that helps to protect the animals, um, works on anti-poaching efforts and conservations for the parks. So we've done a couple of those this year as well. Hmm. So, um, you know, we should also then talk about grid alternatives in the U.S. because that's where there's actually a relatively huge amount of activity. It's been going on since... Uh, I think it's at least 15 years, maybe 16, 17 since it started. Uh -huh. And um, there are all kinds of opportunities for folks who want to learn about implementing solar electric projects. Uh, and uh, it started here in the Bay Area, I'm pretty sure. And then, you know, they started getting grants. Uh, and again, it, this is this is a low-income fo focus, by the way. Yeah. So it's so, so, I mean, there are various organizations uh, that both Janine and I are familiar with, such as Solar Energy International, that do trainings and solar projects all over the world. And some of those are going to be low-income environments and some not. But but uh, the specific focus of grid alternatives and the grants that they get are, you know, helping low-income folks uh, with the, the projects. Uh, but the training is available for anybody. And um, 
what's the latest on, you know, I haven't really checked in on that. It got to be, uh, the, the word was, hey, you know, these projects open up, and unless you get on it within 20 seconds of when <laughs> the posting shows up on the web, you're too late. You can't get in on the project up in Pleasanton or where, wherever. But how, how's it going around here, and how, what's your scope within this country, and are you even in other states besides California now, and what, what, uh, what's the latest on the, the vision for the future for grid alternatives here uh, domestic? Yeah, and so um, uh, there are other people that would be better to talk about the U.S. in general with grid alternatives, but I can give you kind of a, an overview. Um, grid was founded by Erica Mackey and Tim Sears back in 2001, and like you said, we work all over California. Um, we have offices in Oakland and San Diego and Los Angeles and Riverside, Chico. We have a, a Salinas office and a, um, an office near San Luis Obispo. So there's uh, also a, a North Coast office up um, in Willits. So there's a lot of opportunities for folks that want to learn more about solar and actually do a solar installation. So, you know, it's kind of hard to get that experience through a private company. But what's really cool about Grid is you can sign up to be a volunteer. and You can come out for a day or two, um, see from start to finish what it's like to put a solar system on, on a house. And uh, like you mentioned, all of our work is with low-income families and low-income people. And really the best way, if anyone is interested in kind of learning how to actually volunteer and sign up, you can go to the Grid Alternatives website, which is gridalternatives.org. And up in the right-hand corner, there's a little link that says uh, Grid Portal. And if you sign up on this, you can see all the opportunities that are available in all of the offices. And some offices uh, have more volunteers than others, like you mentioned. Um, in some places, it can be harder to, to sign up to install. But in other places, there are a lot of opportunities. So just kind of depends on where the person lives but it's really a great chance to get the hands-on experience um attend the solar training and really learn by doing yeah i remember uh when i uh, had my cabrillo college class uh uh, general renewable energy class which by the way folks <laughs> you heard it here first right now uh the it's official that uh my class after having been off the schedule at cabrillo for the last couple of years is is going to be back in the spring not this semester right now that's starting in for the fall but uh spring of 2019 i'll be teaching my general renewable energy class well anyway Way back, uh, it was from Erica and Tim, the founders of Grid Alternatives. They came down here to Cabrillo and did, you know, the volunteers have to do an indoor training first for, you know, what, three or four hours or something. And then, uh -huh. and then they go off for typically a weekend, uh, one or both days of a weekend, and, and do the actual installation. And I remember uh, meeting some great people who just knew a heck of a lot about everything you know the national electric code and wiring and uh inverters and solar modules and all aspects of it and a couple of those people i've stayed in good touch with and they're they're good friends and uh, amazing resources so it's a spectacular opportunity to i mean all you do is you volunteer <laughs> uh mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you're I, I don't think my students at the time had to pay anything it, they were just volunteering and, uh, right. In the U.S., yeah, there's no cost. You just sign up and show up. Yeah, so it's a great opportunity for getting at least some initial training in what is going to be an increasingly important trade. Uh, you know, the hands-on 
uh, end of uh, designing and then installing, especially the, the uh, solar electric systems and every, everything from schlepping the, the solar panels and, you know, bolting them down onto the roofs and stringing the wiring. And, uh, you know, there are people there who are supervising everything to make sure it's all done right. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant idea. And uh, it's it resulted in a flourishing organization that maybe a whole lot of people don't know about but hopefully people who are listening today <laughs> will become intrigued and and by the way if uh anybody wants to call in well c contact us during this the rest of this interview again the address the email address is radioplanetwatch at gmail.com so and i don't know tommy or maya what what do you all think i, I should have given you a heads up uh, that, that i might call on you for any <laughs> questions or thoughts that you might have but uh any uh any um questions that you might have for janine and janine make sure to if there's any ba big area here that we've missed or that you think is worth bringing up make make sure to uh let us know that in the remaining oh i don't know five minutes or so that we have um but what do folks think here? Hi, Janine. It's Tommy. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at your guys' website right now, which is gridalternatives.org. It's a really nice laid out website. And I'm seeing under the What We Do panel, there's tribal programs like you've discussed so far. But then there's also a section called electric vehicles. And I'm wondering if you can let us know about what work you guys do with electric vehicles. Yeah, that's a great question. That is a newer program. Um, I can't. I can tell you a lot about electric vehicles. <laughs> I don't know if I can tell you a whole lot about um, what we're doing now, other than we are trying to help pave the way to make electric vehicles more accessible to low-income people. So, uh, um, hmm. a big piece of what Grid Alternatives does, in addition to the actual solar installations, is we help develop low-income solar policy guides for other states and other organizations to use. And so the same with electric vehicles. There's a lot of incentives out there right now. I myself drive an electric vehicle, have for seven years. But a lot of the incentives and rebates that are available um, don't make sense for low-income folks or not affordable. So um, that's a lot of the work that we're trying to do there. Hmm. Yeah, and then uh, tribal, tribal lands. You know, uh, I remember uh, the late, great Randy Udall, who was uh, an expert on renewable energy related to... Uh, the, the guy who was the Secretary of Interior. But anyway, he was a, he was quite a solar gadfly, but he just croaked while he was on a backpacking trip in the Wind River Mountains uh, of Wyoming a few years ago. But he used to say that, well, the third world of America is, uh, is the tribal lands, you know, the very undeveloped. Uh, and uh, so I'm kind of excited that you all have things going on there. Um, where... Which uh, tribes, which states, what, what territories are, are you, do you have projects going on? Well, um, so our tribal program works all over the U.S. on tribal lands. Um, many of the different offices, the grid offices, have tribal projects in different areas. Um, there are so many tribes, I, wouldn't, I don't know the names of all of them and wouldn't be able to list them. But we're doing a bunch of work in the Navajo Nation. And uh, Joe, when I met you at the Sierra Club the other night, um, one of the speakers, Tim Willink, is the director of our tribal program. He himself mm -hmm. is Navajo um, and runs the whole program there. And a lot of the work on tribal lands is similar to our domestic U.S. work, installing solar, solar to lower the electric bill for many folks, um, but also in places 
like on Navajo Nation, uh, there are many, many areas that are just not even electrified at all. Um, and so Grid Alternative so far has brought six of the six solar systems to that area, and we're working to do more of that kind of work there. Great. Yeah, that's uh, that's always been of great interest to me. And it's kind of appalling that, you know, so many of our original people, indigenous people here live in kind of just really primitive conditions uh, compared to the standard for most of the country. Uh, so we could do something about that. Um, hey, and um, kind of uh, to finish off here, Janine, I'm sure you got stories to tell from uh, <laughs> from your times out in the wilds with solar uh i don't know tell us about one or two of maybe your diciest adventures or uh most memorable experiences or something uh from uh okay yeah uh i probably have a lot of stories i would just have to jog my memory to come up with the most uh the diciest but um <laughs> something that comes to mind i lived in nicaragua as a peace corps volunteer back in 2001 um and something that i has always stood out to me and it's not specifically solar related but it kind of gives perspective um i was at the time living in a, in a small community and um helping take some donations of clothing and such out to a really really small community called el pedregal and in El Pedregal, um, you know, it's maybe a community of like 200 people or something. Um, it just take, it takes hours to walk there. There's no electric grid. The school was made out of, um, the, the school was like a tiny little building that we would think of more as a shack. The, the walls were made out of mud. The roof was made out of straw. The chalkboard was just like a cut piece of wood. And this is where all of the kids in the community went to school at once with one teacher, you know, multi-grid. And in visiting that school, I remember stopping by one of the houses, and the people in Nicaragua are very generous and often give you food and, and drinks when you're there. Um, they gave me some co local coffee, and I remember I had with me a Ziploc bag. And, you know, a Ziploc bag to us is, us is like nothing. We use it for one day and throw it away and never think about it again. But the man in the house saw my Ziploc bag, and he asked me if he could have it. He was fascinated. He'd never seen something like that before. And he asked me if he could keep it to put his important papers in. And I thought this was just absolutely amazing how we take for granted a lot of the things that we have um, and how valuable this is to this family. Um, and then years later, after I started Part of the People, we ended up going back and putting solar on um, a, a new school building that had been built in that community. And now we have also put solar on many of the houses, solar home systems on many of the houses there too. So it's kind of neat to see that, uh, that evolution in that community happen. Hmm. Yeah, wow. Is that anywhere near Lake Nicaragua? It's a great big. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it is northeast. It's east of the lake. It's in the Bawako region. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, interesting. And uh, I've actually done uh, or been involved with some solar projects in Cuba, which I guess is not uh, one of your territories, but that's another area where uh, lots of off-grid, uh, especially for schools and clinics, and they've greatly increased their solar uh, in recent years. Um, so, um, well, and of course, the good old USA here, <laughs> we need a revolution in solar. It's kind of begun, uh, but it's still in the beginning stages. And so <laughs> one of the limiting factors is good talent, good trained, you know, people to do the green jobs. And so that's what you folks there at Grid Alternatives, both uh, in the U.S. and your new international programs, which Janine here uh, is the head of, 
are, are doing. So uh, it's, a, it's a whole new world out there, and uh, we sure thank you for, uh, especially on such short notice. <laughs> we were at an event uh, up in Oakland last Tuesday is where I met Janine, and there were several other, well, she moderated a panel, and we'll have some of those other people on as guests. Uh, what was the title of that panel? It was Energy Access in Conflict Areas. Right. Which is, um, well, it's kind of a strange topic, you might say, but it's one of those real-world things where, yeah, there's wars going on, and, you know, energy is like the most important resource. It's just behind everything that anybody ever does. And how do, you, how do people deal with that when, when there's war going on? And I remember one of the speakers was uh, a gal from Google, who's their expert on conflict minerals. <laughs> That's another term. Well, you've heard another term, blood diamonds, <laughs> conflict minerals. And, well, what does Google have to do with that? Well, they have cell phones. Uh, they make Google phones, and they have stuff in them that comes from areas where there is war going on. And a lot of times the wars are over. Who's going to get access to those materials? So anyway, uh, any other thoughts on that uh, from your, Janine, just from that event? Uh, what were your thoughts on how that went and uh, where we might go with future such seminars? Yeah, I thought the event was really great. I thought all of the speakers on the panel were great, and I, you could probably do a show with each one of them. They could have easily been a keynote speaker, each one of them, for their own you know, hour-long presentation. So uh, I thought it was really interesting to hear their presentations and see how things tie together and see how, you know, in the energy access world, how it's really kind of a small world and so many things are connected. Um, one of the speakers spoke about uh, energy access work in South Sudan, another about working in the Congo, and then Tim about working on tribal lands. Um, you yeah. asked me a question earlier about other areas that we might be considering, and yeah. I was just going to, just for the sake of the listeners, mention that we are looking at um, Puerto Rico, seeing if it makes mm -hmm. sense for us to do some work in Puerto Rico. Um, and... We are always open to um, exploring possibilities in other places. The trouble with expanding to new countries is that you really need to have a, a well-established and ongoing funding source so that you can have local staff and be there um, for a long time rather than just flying in and installing something and leaving, uh, which leaves behind the solar graveyard, which is the case in a lot of places around the world. So, um, but, but it might be interesting for folks to, to hear that we're, we're looking at Puerto Rico um, possibly, and uh, maybe some other places in the future. But anyone that's out there that's interested in supporting our work beyond traveling with us, there are a lot of opportunities um, to donate or be involved in other ways to help us do work in other areas. Yeah, well, of course, everybody knows about Puerto Rico now after, uh, what was it, Hurricane Maria trashed mm -hmm. the place uh, about half a year ago, I guess. Uh, and, you know, a whole lot of it is still without power, right? What, what is the latest? I mean, for the longest time, it was like 90% of it was dark. Uh, it's, I'm sure it's better now, but uh, what is, uh, you know, and there was this business, Elon Musk was going to go in and solarize Puerto Rico. Well, it turned out to be all talk and no action, I guess. Um, but what is the latest on their prospects and, and any or solar? Elon. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so there's, uh, there, there, I think that a lot of progress has been made, but there are still a lot of places that don't have electricity. And really the problem in, in Puerto Rico is just the, the infrastructure of the electric grid. So there are many different groups and organizations that are working on, on doing different things. I don't 
know that those efforts are very well coordinated. Everyone kind of tends to do their own thing. Um, but there's been some progress made, but there's still a huge opportunity to um, bring electricity there, even for places where the, the grid is up and running and people are connected. Um, you know, there are still blackouts, and so it's still worth um, investing in infrastructure at a smaller level, which is kind of a different kind of microgrid than we talked about earlier, where you can uh, take a bunch of houses that are grid-tied, have them all share a battery bank, and then if there is a blackout, at least the houses in that little mini microgrid um, will have power. So there's re- a lot of opportunities in Puerto Rico still. Um, we're, we're exploring to see if it makes sense for us to, to work there at all. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and something that uh, Janine here mentioned a little bit ago, but I think she's on a cell phone, so we couldn't quite hear it, but S- South Sudan was uh, one of the areas that one of the speakers uh, at that forum talked about. And that's Dan Kamen, who I actually worked with in Kenya years ago in 1995, I think it was, on a solar oven project, which brings up this whole huge other area of <laughs> the, the solar electricity is not the whole thing with solar. In fact, most of the world's solar is solar hot water, and most of that is in China. But anyway, so solar, direct solar heating of water and space, you know, just solar heating uh, is a, and for cooking, you know, solar ovens. And that's what Dan Cameron and I were doing in Kenya. And uh, we'll have him on. He actually said he'd come on. So now I've got to make him get him to make good on that <laughs> promise. We'll have him on a future show about all kinds of interesting things in the world of solar. And uh, so but thanks again, uh, Janine. And th- this was great. And um, look forward to keeping in touch and maybe <laughs> maybe see you in some exotic locale like <laughs> Nepal or something uh, doing doing the good work of solar for the world and uh, with the world <laughs> so thanks Great. so much thank and, you Joe. Uh, yeah i hope we do cross paths somewhere exotic uh, it was really nice talking to you thanks for the opportunity all right great and uh, you can stay tuned if you want and we'll have a little bit of oddball stuff to round out the hour here but uh, okay so thanks to janine smith uh, who's the director of international programs at gridalternatives.org definitely check out that organization for their worthwhile projects both here in the u.s and abroad um well let's see so just a couple things uh, we got like four minutes left i reckon and you know uh, the sky uh, it's still happening i'm just gonna keep saying it as long as it's still happening in the evening <laughs> if you want to see five planets all at the same time one of which is the Earth, <laughs> you, ca- you get this wonderful lineup uh, from west to east of Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. And Mars is still quite bright. It's not as bright as it was a month ago when it was as close to the Earth, even closer to the Earth than it's been in 15 years. But it's still the angry orange dot up there in the southeast in the early evening. Then to its right, you get a somewhat bright but not so bright white dot which is right above the teapot of the constellation of Sagittarius and that dot that white dot is Saturn and then over to the right of that in the southwest in the early evening is Jupiter high in the southwest and then down lower in the west is Venus the brightest of them all you can't and they're all in this long curving arc across the sky you sweep your arms along that arc and you are sweeping out the plane of the solar system it shows you the orientation of the plane of the solar system and now uh, another planet is coming up 
that you don't get too many good chances to see, but a good chance is happening if we can get some of the fog out of the sky here in Santa Cruz. <laughs> but anywhere else uh, that has clear skies in the morning, Mercury. Mercury, the the uh, the winged messenger, the quicksilver planet, the one that uh, you only see for, you know, maybe two, three weeks at a time. It's having one of its better morning appearances of the year. Uh, it's actually going to double in brightness this week. It'll be sort of in a big triangle with the Gemini twins and uh, the star Procyon, which is the minor dog star. <laughs> you got the major dog star Sirius, which is lined up with the three stars in a row in Orion's belt. And by the way, we're in late August now, and Orion is living up to its name as the ghost of the shimmering summer dawn. You know, Orion is high in the sky in the fall and winter in the night, but this time of year in August, late August, it's... it's uh, it's up early in the morning, you know, before dawn. So it's the ghost of the shimmering summer dawn. And you'll see in northern latitudes like here in the U.S., you'll see the three stars in Orion's belt straight up and down. And then they point straight down at Sirius, this bright blue-white diamond, which is the brightest or the apparently brightest star, the star that appears the brightest, other than the sun, of course, in our sky. And then the, that's the major dog star. And then the minor dog star, Procyon, is kind of over near where Mercury is. So... Uh, Anyway, yeah, good chance to see Mercury in the next couple of weeks. And, um, well, let's see, the moon was just full, uh, like, uh, early this morning. And so, well, here's a little quiz for you. Uh, I'll just tell you a fact, and then I'll ask you a quiz. The stars <laughs> every night rise four minutes earlier. That's why <laughs> Orion, which is up early in the morning now... You know, by fall and winter, the stars come up four minutes earlier every night. Well, hey, a month, that's two hours earlier. So each month, two more hours earlier. So pretty soon, Orion will be coming up in the evening. Well, what does the moon do? When it's full, it rises at pretty much the same time as the sun goes down. But tonight is a day past full. So what's it going to do? When's it going to come up tonight? Any guesses from our... <laughs> <laughs> putting putting Tommy and Maya on the hot seat. Well, hey, uh, maybe uh, this is a quiz for you, listener. Just go out and observe. What does the moon do from night to night? I, I will tell you it does not rise at the same time. <laughs> it rises either later or earlier. And this is for you to go and me to know and you to find out. You go out and observe. So keep an eye on the sky. This is Joe Jordan. Thanks to our wonderful interns, Tommy Martin and Maya Rodriguez. And... Rachel, we hope you heard us maybe somewhere or will this week, and we'll look forward to having you back next week, and we're going to have a talk about the water protectors and uh, the major victory out there at Standing Rock. So thanks for listening to Planet Watch.